Hey everybody, before we start the show today, we wanted to let you know that there's a brand new video out for Game Nights. Yeah, it's a behind the scenes of how we make the show from pre-production all the way to post-production and putting it on YouTube. Yep, a lot of footage that was left on the cutting room floor, as they say, some outtakes and candid moments with many of our biggest guests. If you're a fan of Game Nights, we definitely encourage you to go over to our YouTube channel and check it out. Yeah, in fact, go over there right now. Click the link, it's in the description box below, and then come back and watch the rest of the podcast. All right, on to the show. Greetings, humans. You have entered the Command Zone, your destination for all aspects of Elder Dragon Highlander. Enjoy your stay. <laughs> Jimmy, just say something for them. Hey, everybody. How's it going? Sorry, I'm, I'm going to try to hit a high note. Hey, everybody. <laughs> Jimmy's voice is, uh, it's going. Hey, yeah, right now, this is about the highest I can talk before it starts to crack. <laughs> you know, I'm surprised because so much of your work involves you using your voice a lot. Talking all the time. this hasn't happened before. This is the, com- oh God, this is the combination of, of sickness and, and some vocal exhaustion. So how's it going, everybody? You are watching and listening to the Command Zone Podcast. I'm your host, Jimmy Wong. How's it? It's Josh Lee Kwai. My voice is fine, however. Indeed it is. Thank and goodness. Today, we're going to be using our, our voices to talk about, um, or sorry, to answer some questions that you guys have sent in and to talk about one of the more contentious, controversial uh, decision points that we've ever had on Game Nights. That Probably got a the lot of, most contentious. Yeah, I would say if the the latest episode of Game Nights, if you looked in the comments, like 90% of them are talking about this one decision point, I'm sure. If you Excellent. watched it, you know what we're talking about. Um, we're also going to be answering questions like, what do I do if I win, if I'm winning too often? How do I fix that problem? Or how useful... <laughs> as a problem? We've, we've talked about this before. We'll get into it. Uh, and how useful is the official ban list, which is an Ooh, interesting yeah. uh, an interesting discussion. But first, before we get into all that, we need to talk about our wonderful sponsors. Yes. If you go to cardkingdom.com slash command zone and use that affiliate link when you buy your magic products, singles, any of the accoutrement that goes with the awesome uh, oh game goodness. that we play, including ultra pro play mats. Like, check this baby out. I got the full art unstable island. Jimmy's got the mountain. These things Heck, are amazing. Yeah, looking. they're amazing. Yeah. So use the that affiliate link when you order the stuff you're already going to order and you're supporting Game Nights and the Command Zone. Speaking of Ultra Pro, there are other sponsors of the show. And of course, you can pick up Ultra Pro products pretty much everywhere you go. All of your LGSs should have them in stock as well as cardkingdom.com slash command zone. So big thank you to Ultra Pro as always for sponsoring this show. I want to tease out and we're not going to, we're going to release this in I think the next Game Nights, but... They have a new product coming out that's pretty sweet. Yeah, I'm pretty like excited it. about it. So we're going to be showing that off soon. Uh, all right. The, the final way to support the show is directly at patreon.com slash command zone. In fact, we call out one lucky patron every single episode. And this episode is dedicated to Felicia Roletsky. Felicia, you rock. you rock. Another thing really quickly, two patrons. We are currently running a sort of promotion where you have a chance to make a guest appearance on Game Nights. Oh, what? Uh. That's correct. You can audition to be on a future episode of Game Nights. All of those rules and regulations for how to enter are in the more info box below the description. Click on that link, follow those uh, guidelines, and good luck. Yeah, very excited to finally bring someone from the community onto the show. This is your chance. Make sure you don't miss out on it. 
All right, now it's time for the main topic, which is listener-submitted questions. I'm going to note that the questions we're going to read are paraphrased. They're not direct quotes from the people. Okay. Let me take this first one. Okay. In my playgroup, I'm usually the player who wins because I have a lot more experience and access to a better collection than my friends do. So it tends to become a game of arch enemy no matter what deck I am playing. Do you have any tips on how to lower the power level of my decks so they aren't so overwhelming? Written to us from Cassius Marsh. <laughs> Just kidding. This is from someone named Draven. <laughs> it could be from Cash, though. It could be from Cash. <laughs> uh, so this is the I'm winning too often. What do I do about it question, I think. Yeah. Um, well, let's talk about why Draven, why Draven asked this question, which is it probably doesn't make you many friends when you're always winning, and especially if you're playing with the same play group. So it makes a lot of sense why someone might not want to be winning as often, but focusing more on having fun. And he says here, you know, it makes him become uh, the arch enemy no matter what he's de- what right. deck he's playing. And we've seen that this can a snowball where people, they win too much. As a result, their play group tends to try and take them out. And... In response, they tend to just only play their most powerful decks, which makes them even more scary. So the playgroup kills them first. And and that's a path that really is going to lead you in a bad direction. Yeah. And I think Draven's pretty smart here saying like, okay, how do I stop the direction that we're going here? Maybe lower the power level of my decks or do something so that I stop being the arch enemy. Because otherwise, you're forced to go that other direction, which is like play more and more powerful decks. Start comboing out on turn four so I can beat everybody, right. which makes them want to kill me even harder. And then... You know, and you also don't want your playgroup to go down that route too. If someone's like, "Well, the only way that I can beat Draven's decks, or if I combo on turn three or four, or if I just build my deck to be entirely counterspell, and then, or if your... we just all three of us just always only yeah. kill him first, and then your meta starts devolving, not evolving. So, uh, I think there are a couple of ways of going about this. The first is you can either tune down the decks you already have, or you can start building new decks. I think tuning down is a lot easier. Um, I actually just of the two choices I don't that's the one I like oh, least. Yeah. Well, I mean I can see why like this is a good deck, a powerful deck if I need to whip it out at some point and I'll, I know I'll have it. But let's say you have five decks, all five of them are way too powerful and you don't want to build another deck. Well, in Draven's case he has a big collection so it might not be a huge issue. Um but tuning down the deck I think is really easy. Just go into your deck and find, you know, take out the clearly most powerful cards that always are the ones that power you ahead. Not necessarily like the soul rings, but your mana crypts. Uh, your, you know, your infinite combinations. Like, find other ways that make you personally interested to play the deck. Maybe your win con is now no longer go infinite or win with tooth and nail uh, entwined, but rather win with a token overwhelm strategy instead. You know, so like there's different ways to structure win conditions that aren't as, you know, oppressive, if that makes sense. I think a good way to to sort of detune decks if you want to lower the power level is just take out the tutors. Mm -hmm. So if you just went in and just took out anything that tutors for anything or maybe left in only one or two and now all of a sudden you're just reliant on your to draw the right things it's going to up the variance level of your deck and just naturally make it a little bit less powerful i do like what you said you know a long time ago now we had um marshall from loading ready run on Mm -hmm. and he talked about not putting cloudstone curio in his animar deck just because he thought he's like that's a little too much like that's a it's a little too good yeah you know and that thought process can sort of lead you to take out you know, certain cards, like you said, tooth and nail, things like that. Tooth and nail is a tutor, so that goes along with it too. I, I do prefer the, because part of the fun for me of Magic is like, I have all my decks and then a new set comes out and I'm like, oh, I'm going to put this card in this deck, this card in that deck. And then, you know, but it feels like when you're detuning the power level, it's hard to kind of have that part of the fun where every time new cards come out, you get to try and use them. Right. So to me, I would try and build a new deck or a couple of new decks and I would make the goal of those decks different than winning. 
So like I've talked about in the past, maybe I make a deck and the goal of the deck is just to flip as many coins as possible. <laughs> and like whenever I play that deck, I don't really care about winning so much. I'm still gonna win, I'm playing it, try to win. But at the same time, when I'm building it, I'm actually gonna build it in a manner that has as many coin flippy cards in it. Or you could do that with a lot of different things. Um, I'm gonna play a deck that's an entirely clone deck and I'm just trying to clone everybody's stuff. And now my deck can't be oppressive. It can only have cards equal to the power level of your cards because I'm only gonna clone your cards. You know, that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if you have a big collection, Draven, uh, you could also even challenge yourself to, you know, maybe it's like, hey, what if I'm naturally just, I've been playing the game for five more years than everyone else. I have a lot more experience. In that case, you could be like, all right, what if I tried to build an uncommon deck? You know, just like give yourself oh, some crazy restrictions. Yeah. Be like, it's not gonna be anywhere near as powerful as my other decks. I won't even have to be able. To, I won't even be able to tutor do a lot of the things I normally do. But maybe I can try and win through sheer gameplay. I really like that. Instead. Yeah, it's almost like a popper deck, but it's it allows uncommons. But you think of how less uh, powerful your deck will be with no rares, no mythics. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's great. Uh, I have one other way that you could do this, and that's build a new deck or as many as you want, and they're just they have to be Boros. <laughs> and there if you're you go. doing that, make sure you watch our breaking Boros episode. I think it was. I forget what number it was, but we go and then we break down how to potentially make Boros somewhat viable in Commander because red and white, unfortunately, gets the short end of the stick more often than not. All the time, still. All right. Yeah, okay. I know. We won't, we won't retread over the same ground. All right. All right. The second question is, it's from uh, Greg. He says, I have one playgroup that allows the use of banned cards like Prophet of Crufix. Mm -hmm. Boy, that sounds like a dream playgroup. <laughs> and then one playgroup that does not. Could you talk about how you think some or all of the banned cards should be approached in casual play? This is a really interesting question because we are a casual format. Even the rules committee says like, hey, talk to your play group. You can jockey the rules around how you feel like. Um, what do you think about you know, the ban list uh, in casual play groups allowing some of the banned cards to still be played? I feel like it's a case of people going like, well, I just don't want to stop playing it, so I'm not gonna. The problem is that for someone like Greg that bounces between several playgroups, and let's say you're someone that plays at your LGS all the time, I think the larger the playgroup is and the more more people that come in and out of it, you have to adhere more to the actual ban list. Just because it's going to be too hard to tell people, like, hey, if you guys come to this game store on Sundays, we're allowing Prophet of Crufix and this card. It's a little too much. Uh, so I think, in general... I'm all about just house groups deciding, but I think if you're ever going to bring decks out into the wild, your deck should adhere to the ban list. Yeah, I agree. I, I think it's just stuff. really hard, and you got to think of it this way. And I think of it in our playgroup, right? We're smart guys. We talk about magic all the time. We're not game designers. And so our ability to tell what's broken and what's not is I just don't trust it, mm -hmm. you know? I don't trust it as much as like a generally agreed upon. And listen, we got our problems with the rules committee and everything, but at least there's a process they go through, um, whether you 100% agree with it or not, to ban cards. And and it's generally agreed upon, and so everyone's going to be on that same baseline. Mm -hmm. Because what happens in a playgroup where you allow, you know, Profit of Crew Fix and somebody wins with it, you know, in a couple of games, is that the other players are like, yeah, well, that card's banned. So, you know, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, it just doesn't create great feelings. I don't know. To me, I... For, for better or for worse, uh, I feel like you kind of, you you need to adhere to it. Now, super casual playgroups, people don't have a lot of cards. They just want to play their cards. I understand, and, and that's fine. Um, but my opinion is that, like, if somebody came and they're like, I've got a banned card in my deck, I'd probably be like, yeah, okay, play it. But in the back of my mind, I'd be like, you know. If that card wins the game. Yeah, if, if you play it and it wins the game, then it's, it's kind of BS, right? 
Yeah, especially because no one else is running against those rules. Um, another yeah. thing too is like the profit of crucifix is good always, but it's just how good it is also varies on the deck and how good the decks are around the table and all that stuff. For instance, you know, if you have ways of abusing it in major ways, then you're obviously going to, it's going to be way more powerful. But if you're just like playing vanilla creatures or just like the cards you drafted last night at FNM, it's not as big of a deal. So I think a lot of that sort of has to go into it too, Greg, when it comes down to whether or not you're going to allow it to be used or not. Because if it's like, oh, this playgroup is mad powerful and they all use banned cards like Prophet of Crucifix, that doesn't actually sound like a lot of fun. Uh, I'll give a little another little tip here. If you're playing in a group and they allow some of the bland, banned cards, some of the cards that are on the ban list to be played in that group, play the banned cards. Those are the good ones. They're banned for a reason. Mm-hmm. Play all of that stuff. Yeah. All okay. the moxes. Oh. <laughs> all right. Time walks. Uh, the third question. You want to read it? Yeah. My play group wants to begin playing Commander. Just start over. I don't know what the first word was. My play group. <laughs> my, my play group wants to begin playing Commander, but we're in junior high school and it's expensive. How do you play Commander on a budget? Precon City. Precons are great. Um, even in junior high, though, that might be expensive, right? It's thirty five dollars. Yeah. Yeah. Um, a lot of LGSs will often donate their extra commons, uncommons, draft shaft to places like the Boys and Girls Club, YMCA. Uh, and a lot of times, a lot of places just have cards sitting out. Also, if you end up going to an LGS, I've seen plenty of times where someone just goes, hey, you're a new player? Here, take all of this. Please, yep. just take my cards. Um, and I think if you're a group that wants to, go, to start playing, but you guys don't want to spend money on it, you guys can start storing those cards together as a group and figuring out how to build different decks with it and just make it as interchangeable as possible so it's not like, oh, John has the best deck by far, but rather like, oh, cool, we have five decks built with these cards that are all about equal power level and we switch off with them constantly. Um, otherwise, you're going to run into what everyone runs into, which is like, my collection's better than yours, so I'm going to beat you more. Yeah, or I'm just willing to spend more than you are. Mm-hmm. And um, if you guys are in high school, it's going to end at some point, so it's not like going to be in this play group forever. So I think it would be totally a normal and healthy thing to really share these cards amongst each other. I like what you said earlier, actually, for this too. You could just make a rule within your group to keep costs down. We're just only going to allow uncommons and commons. Right. There's also a lot of ways that people play where they sort of have a structure. To, they have a league structure or something where, like, each week I can add one card to my deck. Mm-hmm. And that kind of keeps everything's in check, right? You can only yeah, add fine. one card, so it can't get out of hand. Where like somebody comes and they spent, you know, fifty dollars on new cards and totally changed their deck in it's, one week. Yeah, yeah. unless yeah. it's the profit. Even prefix. if they buy a fifty dollars single card, it's not going to change their deck by a huge percentage because it's one card out of a hundred. Um, so I think that's another way to sort of handle budget is to just agree upon some kind of stipulation or some kind of clamp that keeps everybody similar, and then. Part of the fun of Magic, though, is changing your deck over time and improving it and seeing what's going wrong and then making those changes. So to allow for that, I like, like, oh, we can add in two cards a week or one card a week or blah, 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 making some kind of rule, but keeping it stringent enough so that it can't get out of control. I think that's a good way to play budget. Also, a good way to play budget is to listen to the Commander's Brew podcast. Yeah. Because those guys, Andy and Sean, they uh, really know the budget stuff and how to sort of build really strong decks. I've played with Andy a bunch of times, and I don't feel like his decks are like worse than my decks, and he's building those things for like 50 bucks a lot of times. So. Yeah, you're often just dying to combat damage. Yeah. You're getting trampled over. It almost made it. it almost. almost got there. Okay. Um, oh, I like this question. What do you think... Oh, this is from Adrian. Adrian? There's two A's. I don't know how to do that. Adrian! 
<laughs> what do you think is the most fun to play with or would be the most fun to play with? A table full of chaos decks or a table full of group hug? The answer is not chaos decks, by the way. Yeah, you know what's funny? <laughs> this is, It's group hug. The answer to that is group hug. A table full of group hug would be fun. Everyone would draw a million cards, yeah. have a bunch of stuff. I don't know how that game ends. I mean, group hug decks are usually sneaky and all of a sudden they win. Or the, it's usually combat damage based, but a lot of the times it'd be like, oh, no one can attack anyone. Yeah, because there's all so. pillow forwarded and stuff. Uh, yeah, I have the same experience with you, and this might be skewed because of my own chaos deck. Yeah. But chaos decks tend to actually not play out super fun. No, especially if it's, I mean, look, if it's not fun when one player is playing a chaos deck at the table of four, it's not going to be fun when four. I think it's like the novelty of it would wear off really quickly. Because uh, at a certain point, too, the rules interactions just go crazy. Imagine, like, multiple warp worlds on the table. What would even happen? Yeah. And chaos decks tend to create really long games. Oh, yeah. That's the worst part. Of because what happens is people play th- can't make strategical or tactical decisions. They play something, and they don't know what the effect will be because some weird enchantment's out saying, whenever you play this card, this actually happens instead of what's supposed to happen. It's not... Yeah, it's not super conducive to quick games, which I like quick games. I mean, I'm not saying a group hug game, all group hug game would be fast. It just would eventually end, whereas... It'd be more productive because you'd be able to cast a spell and keep it. You can at least try to win at some point. But chaos decks can't usually try to win, and they usually stop other win conditions from actually doing the thing they're supposed to. Yeah, because it gives your spell to someone else, or it exiles it under some enchantment to be brought back later, or you you start melling yourself for no random reason. (laughs) All right, so I think we're on the same page. Group hug. You've often discussed the problem of, I'm a strong player, so everyone targets me, but my problem is that I'm the weakest player in my playgroup, so everyone targets me. Even when I play my friend's decks, they see me as easy meat. What do I do? From Liam. So this is interesting, because we did uh, a a full episode almost on my playgroup targets me first, what Mm -hmm. do I do? And it's usually because that person is kind of like, it was kind of like Draven where they have they have more experience and better cards and the playgroup learns, let's kill that person first and it's arch enemy. This is kind of the opposite problem where like I'm weaker and they see me as easy meat so they take me out first. What do I do in that instance? Even when playing my friend's decks, so it's not even... The deck power, it's just him as a player that they're viewing that way. And this can happen a lot because I think we all know that everybody in a playgroup has varying levels of like how hardcore they are into magic. And you always have a couple of people who like, they know how to play, but they're not super into it. And they'll come to hang out because they like hanging out, but they're not like looking up cards on the internet and combos and interactions, you know, on their spare time. They're just coming the nights you play and they're just playing the cards. Yeah. I I feel bad for you, Liam, in a lot of ways, because this is like, in a lot of ways it's bullying just straight up. Like, Oh, he's easy to take out. We don't want to make hard decisions. Let's go after him first. Uh, I think part of it might be politicking um, because even when you're playing your friend's deck, let's say your friend's decks are on equal power level as everyone else's, then you actually have political fuel, which is like, look, why are you taking me out? I can be your ally instead. Or like, I will send everything I have at you every single turn if you decide to do this to me until you guys realize that it's not you know, a fun interaction for me. I'm not going to make it fun for you kind of thing. That's like the Josh Lee Kwai uh, fire and brimstone approach. Well, I think the the sort of good thing about that approach and you don't have to take that approach but that philosophy is like what in that scenario you have a plan mm-hmm. and it doesn't matter what your deck is or whatever you've got a plan you're focused and you're gonna do a thing and i think that's the problem with a lot of players sort of in liam's position is they're wishy-washy they don't seem like so they are easy meat and you don't worry about them you at least become a factor and something to worry about when you're like i have a plan and your plan could be like i'm gonna attack this player 
And mm. that's just my plan for this game, just to give me something to sort of park my, you know, my plan on. And then they have to at least take you seriously in some way. And they can't just, if you're willy nilly, you don't know, you know, it's not that you don't know the cards and you don't know what you're doing. You also don't know what you're trying to do or accomplish. At least just have a plan and just have a default in mind. Well, when something comes up, I'm going to destroy. I'm this player is going to be my enemy. This game it at least gives you a reason for being and to be taken seriously by at least one person at the table, right? Yeah, and I mean that's the thing is like it's not going to be something that's solved in one game ever. I think I think this is the kind of thing that you have to do over the course of time, and also even like talking to the table and being like, look, it's not fun when you guys do this. I'm trying my best to contribute, and it does makes me and like. For instance, if this makes you not want to play, I think the players at the table should respect that at the very least. Um, otherwise, I would just start being a threat. You know, figuring out, you know, listen to some of our politicking episodes, find ways to slide into people's sort of trust circles and and make your way into being like, oh, wow, like Liam did a lot this game. Holy crap. Like if it wasn't for him, this wouldn't have happened. Or if it wasn't for him, he wouldn't have attacked me here. Or like he actually counterspelled the right thing at the right time. You know, like I, I think a lot of players like Liam, they tend to I like what you said, because they tend to just feel like they don't impact the game because they tend to feel like they're afraid to do stuff. Liam. If they're always ganging up on you, just do stuff. Blow things up. Kill things when you have a chance. Attack people. Yeah. Have an impact. And if they're yeah. like, why did you do that? Like, well, I don't know. Why do you keep attacking me first every time? <laughs> I mean, I think that's a really good statement to make. Is like, I'm tired of being attacked and taken out of the game every time. The first person that hits me, I don't care. Everything I've got for this entire game is going at you. Yeah. And then you have a little fun mini game for yourself. And, you know, that game is going to be better than you getting taken out first, right? So at least it's an, an incremental uh, growth at that point for your personal satisfaction. Good luck, Liam. Okay. This one's from Alex. He says, I've been watching a bunch of Iconic Masters drafts. Sorry, this is from a little while ago, evidently. And everybody raves about Ravnica Karu slash Bounce Lands right. Unlimited. What do you think about them in Commander? How about Theros Scrylands? Would you play one, the other, both, neither? So Bounce Lands, Scrylands. Alex is wondering, are they good in Commander? It is a really good question. Uh, every deck is going to want different ones for different reasons. In general, I'm not a big fan of the Scry lands. In general, I don't think any land that comes into play tapped is going to be what I want to do. At the same time, we always preach on the show, look, if you need a dual land, it's okay if it comes into play tapped. If it even just gains you one life or even does nothing, it's fine. If that's what you have and you don't have you know, other dual lands, I would rather run a Scry land than just have all basics. Right. You know, If I'm in a two or three color deck, I might as well put the Scry lands in. I just don't want more than like maybe 40% of my lands to be lands that have to come into play tapped. Right, right. Yeah. Um, the bounce lands are very good and limited, uh, depending on the format, but they're also really good in They're commander. always good and limited. Yeah. They're just lands that give you card advantage. Uh, because what happens when you play them, They'll let's say you play the Simic one. You, it plays it, it comes into play tapped, you return another land you control to your hand, and, it can, and that land itself that you just played can tap for green and blue, so it actually taps for two mana. But you're, of course, taking a land back. Um, I think they're really good in Commander if you have lands that, have, that help you trigger landfall, um, if you have any creatures that care about lands coming into play. If you have things that untap lands, right. uh, QR's Followers, Teferi, Garrick Wildspeaker, my favorite, Fate Stitcher. Because you can untap now, and bounce lands. And think make of a QR's Follower normally makes one mana, untap a land. With a bounce land, it makes two mana. That's huge. That's a big mm -hmm. game. Um, I think bounce lands, a couple of them in decks is often good because think of an opening hand that has two lands in it. Eh, think of an opening hand that has two lands in it, but one of them's a bounce land. Hey. I have three mana in my hand. Yeah, that's a lot better. And so it's going to help you. Like I said, that is basically a land that drew you a card. It drew you another land. Uh, or it's worth two lands or something. But the problem is you think of a land that has 
two lands in its opening hand, but they're both bounce lands. Uh, you can't keep that. You can't play either of those. Because your lands just keep bouncing each other if you don't draw another land. So I think balance is really important. I agree with you. The scry lands I just find to be low impact. I think you can play them in decks that are going to bounce their lands and stuff and maybe get extra scry. And even then, most colors are so good at card draw and and that that kind of stuff on their own that they don't need it, but maybe in Boros or something. Yeah, I was going to say, if you're a Boros deck, you'll play all the scry lands. Yeah, because you do need that sort of pseudo card advantage. Um, so again, I think moderation though is key here. I don't think there's very many decks that want, you know, every bounce land and every scry land they can play. They want a couple. Yeah. yeah. I'm going to make you read this next question. Okay. My throat can't handle it. Your throat can't handle it. Yeah. This is a big one. It's a big one. Okay. So there's a player, sorry, this is from an unknown person. Their name was withheld and they also, uh, gave a pseudonym to the player they're talking about. So evidently everybody in their play group listens to this show. So there's a player, let's call him Bob, not his real name who is the organizer of our playgroup. Bob's our best player. He has the best decks and the most wins. He uses a lot of shaming tactics to get most uh, the most advantage in our games, shaming us for attacking him, even when he's the biggest threat, and whining that we ruin his fun whenever we gang up to stop his combos. There have been times where I could counter Bob's combos or destroy his win cons before they go off, but chosen not to. It's better for morale to take the loss than to have him complain. Whoa. This to me seems hostile and oppressive. Though he states this is part of the politics of EDH and it works for him, he wins the most games using the best tactics. So my question is, is this proper EDH behavior? Is Bob in the right and I just can't handle politics? Or is he being too oppressive? If so, what can be done? This is a very intense question. Bob seems like a very intense fellow. And I think we've all met some version of Bob in our life that is like a... I don't care, I'm going to win no matter what kind of person, and I don't mind how I get there. Um, He's also the organizer. I like how they puts that in there. There's a yeah. little bit of added pressure in that, well, maybe I just won't invite you back. Right, or like, hey, I put this together. I'm going to play the way I want to. This is my game. These are my cards, etc. cetera. Um, First of all, don't be Bob. Yeah, don't be Bob. And if you and are And you know Bob, I advocate some tactics like this. Um, right. Yeah, but... We always, always say it has to stay at the table. It has to stay in the game. It never falls outside the game or outside the table. And it feels like Bob's taking it past the game, past the table. Yeah, I don't think it's proper EDH behavior to make someone feel bad for not letting you win the game, for example. You're about to win the game. Everyone's goal at the table is usually to win the game. And if they're going to do something to take out your card and you start publicly shaming them or making them feel bad for it to the point where they don't even want to talk to you or play with you again, then you're just being a toxic person. Do you really want to be the person who they're letting win so they don't whine to? Yeah, oh, yeah, right? Like, are, are your wins Did real you, wins? Yeah. Are, is, are you okay going to sleep at night knowing that you won because other people just let you win because of the way you behave? Now, I want to win because I convinced you not to attack me and that Jimmy was a bigger threat because blah, blah, blah. But mm-hmm. I don't want to win because, eh, you know, you just didn't counterspell my thing. Yeah. Um, I think this points to a much larger issue in gaming in general that I've noticed across video games, board games, card games, you Sports. name it. Sports. Is that when it comes to the idea of there's one winner and I want to be that winner, and especially when you're playing a game, I think the mentality of a lot of people loses a lot of maturity and people get very childish in a lot of their behaviors and tactics. Um, Because, you know, I mean, the first time you play games are on the playground. 
And that's when you use tactics like this to sort of get your way, or you get bullied by someone that does something like this, or you are the bully. Um, but we're all adults now, and we, for the most part, we're all like you know older than the age of sixteen to eighteen. I think the average demographic for a Magic player is like mid twenties or something. Yeah, I think so. Uh, this is no way to be acting if you're in your 20s. This is no way to be acting actually ever in your life. The only reason that we allow it for kids is because they don't know any better. And then we usually talk to them or we show them, hey, you shouldn't be doing this for X, Y, and Z reasons. Um, but I, I think this is something that the entire group needs to come together about. And it's not just Bob's fault in a lot of ways. I think because you said name withheld that you will let him do something because you don't want to face the other side of it. In, in an unfortunate way, you are still letting the problem continue to be a problem. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Because the one of the most important sentences in this whole thing was sometimes I have the ability to counter Bob's combo or whatever and stop him from winning, but I just don't do it because of they say morale. Uh, it's better, better for, for morale, morale to take the loss than to have him complain. The problem is that perpetuates the thing that's going on. For me, when some situation like this is happening in the game or in life, I actually am looking for a point to make a confrontation happen because if I never make the statement, hey, I don't like this, then you could ostensibly never know. Yeah. And therefore, what is the impetus for it to ever stop? And so I need to find a point as soon as possible so that the the process of it not happening anymore can begin. I need to find a point to make you know, my viewpoint clear. And so I would literally counter their spell every time and want them to complain so that I can have that confrontation right. of they go, you're always countering my stuff. And I'm like, because I hate how you complain so hard about it all the time. And I'm going to keep doing it until you act like a, a, a grown up person. Yeah. And now I've had, I've gotten my ability to make my statement. And now they know what's up. They know everything. Yeah. And everything's out in the open rather than everything's resentful and, and, you know, under my breath. And so I think that's probably the healthiest thing to do is to, you know, look for an opportunity to confront the person about what's going on because Bob might not even know. Yeah, Bob may be oblivious. I mean, he does say, you know, you quote him here saying that it would, quote, unquote, ruin his fun. And I think that in itself What about my fun? Yeah, what about our fun? It's a group game. It's a four-player game. Um, And that could just be something that Bob is not in the know about. It could be that he just very much thinks that every time he sits on the play Magic, it's all about how he feels at the end of it and that there's no consideration for the group. And that may be very true in a 1v1 game in a tournament setting, in a competitive setting, um, which I think Bob would do very poorly in, by the way, because people are intent on winning all the time in those settings. Um, I, I do think though that as a group, you guys and girls should definitely have some sort of intervention or some sort of talk where it's like, Hey, this is not working. This is not going well for any of us. And Bob, even though you are winning the most because you have good cards and all that stuff, it's, we don't want to play with you. And honestly, you guys have a play group and I don't want it to get to the point where you guys all go, okay, you know what? Everyone but Bob is invited to this next game night. We're going to organize it ourselves. But that is sort of the reality of what's going to happen to you, Bob, if you actually end up continuing this behavior and if the playgroup doesn't do anything to address and root out the main issue at hand here. All right. Good luck, name withheld. Good luck to all of you. We're all counting on you. And please, it's okay to act like grown-ups. No one's going to get mad at you for being a mature adult and doing mature adult things. Yeah, and standing up for yourself. It's totally okay. You're not accusing anybody or yelling at anybody. You're just saying, like, listen, I just you, you probably don't know this. I don't like that. And, Bob, it's okay to 
to let other people have fun. And it's okay to, you know, for everyone to play the game, right? If it should be expected that if you're about to win, they're going to try and stop you. Why do you want to play a game where that doesn't happen? I know, right? <laughs> like, the whole point of the game is to overcome the obstacles. Yeah. It's not to make them not want to play the obstacles. You also have to think, like, you're the organizer of the playgroup, so you've put a little additional responsibility on your shoulders, too. And if your active goal or if your active thing that you do is shaming other people for doing stuff, then what kind of organizer are you? And what kind of example are you setting for maybe the more impressionable kids in the, the group that maybe are just learning how to politic? And if you're the person out front doing that, then you are setting an awful example for everyone else. So don't forget, you have a lot of impact as well and responsibility as the organizer. All right. This is our last question before we talk about the who to attack dilemma from the latest episode of Game Nights. Oh, it's from you. This question is from Josh. I did not choose it because it's from somebody named Josh, but that doesn't hurt. (laughs) I am a new player to Magic. Been in it about two months, and I have already gotten Commander's Anthology, Arcane Wizardry, Dracanit, uh, draconic domination and i got it on the third try and feline ferocity that's a lot uh, in job. two months josh way to go what Sounds kind like me what kind of tips would you guys give me to help become a better player and more competitive without playing with pre-constructed commander deck so josh is looking it looks like to graduate from the pre-constructed playing the pre-constructed deck to right. sort of starting to dip their toe in the water of their own decks so let's see here the commander's anthology had four decks in it one was the original Kalia deck the other was Derevi Marin Marin Freilis right so those very powerful decks and they all have other commanders within those decks that are very good runes in there Mm -hmm. there's a bunch of other ones yeah Arcane Wizardry Draconic Domination first try and Feline Ferocity were all of the newest (laughs) the rubbins yeah yeah but everybody could understand it when I finally said it Um, and all of those decks have new commanders as well Uh, the first thing I would recommend oh god the first thing I would recommend Josh would be to listen to our episodes where we actually break down for instance we broke down the Marin deck we broke down Fraley's and everything but call feline ferocity for sure oh and draconic domination yeah, and so we've broken all of them down. We've shown how someone like Alex Kessler might build a Kess deck out of the Arcane Wizardry deck. Definitely listen to, oh gosh, definitely listen to all of those uh, in terms of understanding our philosophy behind how you would take out some cards, weaker cards, and replace them with better ones. And then I think I would just go through all of those decks and find the one commander that you really want to build first and go from there. You know, one of the things we do for our reviews of these decks is we don't do a total rebuild. So we don't say take the commander and here's an entirely new deck that was only using a couple cards from the pre-constructed deck. We actually say, listen, here's 10 cards you could swap out for 10 cards in the deck. So we're doing sort of a, a dip your toe in the water, you know, a first step towards deck building. And I think, Josh, you might be at that point in your sort of magic career of like, it's daunting to create an entirely new deck, you know, from scratch where you're just like, here's the commander. Now I got to come up with 99 cards. It's a lot easier to be like, here's a commander and I've already got a deck. And then what I'm going to do is my goal here is to just take out the 10 worst cards and add in 10 better cards. Yeah. And now you've begun the deck building process, but you didn't jump right into the deep end, right? You're, you're, you're waiting in the shallow end. And as you do that, now you go, okay, well, I'm going to switch out 10 more cards. And, 10, and before you know it, you actually changed out most of the cards in the deck and built a full deck. And then, you know, maybe eventually you kind of get to the point where you're like, okay, well, now I'm going to build Rune. And with Rune, all I have is Rune. And I need to, you know, end up maybe five or 10 cards from the deck. And I'm literally going online to tapped out or whatever and yeah. coming up with what the other 90 cards are. Um, 
I think becoming a better player as well definitely involves making sure that you do all of the things that we normally say. So having making sure that you have a much, enough ramp card draw and sort of enablers and all that stuff in the deck to make sure your deck actually functions. So I hate saying like, go listen to our other episodes to find out how to become a better player. Um, and I think for becoming better at playing and competitiveness, just playing more and yeah. hopefully not in people like Bob's playgroups, but in different LGSs at conventions with your friends and always have an open ear and open mind to what other people are doing, what they've done with their decks and how they're politicking their way around the table and finding what works for you, what you think doesn't work as well and all that stuff. And always just paying attention uh, will definitely help you become a better player over time. I'm a strong believer in making your growth incremental. And I think a lot of people get tripped up. I'm going to use uh, the, the game we love to play in Vegas, Jimmy, Craps. Oh, good which game. Which is a dice game. But if you walk up to the table and you look at it, it's very confusing. There's a ton of different numbers on there. There's people yelling things. And I've taught many people over the years how to play this game. And they always are like, what's this? What's this? What's this? And I'm always like, hold on. Learn these two rules. Play this, these two numbers. Don't worry about all the rest of the stuff. Because if you try to learn it all at once, you won't learn any of it. But you learn those two things. And then once you've got that down, you learn these three things. And then once you've got that down, now you're... And before you know it, you'll have learned the entire game. Whereas if you try to learn it all at once unlikely that you're going to get there. And I think yeah. basically a lot of life can be that way where you just set yourself the next step. And yeah, you want to get to the top of the mountain, but you got to take the first step first and then the next step and then the next step. So, you know, just change out 10 cards or so, go from there. You'll get there, Josh. Sounds like you're uh, on your way to a pretty big collection already. Two months. Yeah, good. you got some good cards in those decks too. So, <laughs> Okay, let's switch gears now. We're done with our question and answer period. We're going to talk about... The Who to Attack Dilemma from the most recent Game Nights. I'm going to lay out the scenario in case you haven't seen it. What happens is Mel board wipes. And on my side of the table, I have Cathar's Crusade, Astronaut's Altar, a bunch of creatures, and Alenda. I'm not going to get into specifics, but I sack all the stuff, and I end up with 10 11-11 lifelinking vampires. So 110 power on the board during Mel's turn. Mel goes, oh, crap, I didn't realize that was going to happen. She plays Crawl Space, which is a card that says that I can only attack her with two creatures. So she's, I think she's at 37 life. She's safe from dying. Because you can only hit her for 22. Yep, and she's fully tapped out, and she passes the turn. Now, next is Jimmy's turn. Jimmy's at 35 life, has no creatures. Exactly, uh, I think you had eight mana. Eight mana, yeah. Eight mana. He counts his eight mana. He's playing blue-green. And he passes the turn without casting anything. So it comes to my turn. I have the 110 power. That's 10, 11, 11 vampires on the board. Craig is the fourth player. He's to my left. During his turn, he fully tapped out. So he has nothing. And because his creatures got killed by Wrath of God, he has literal nothing. And he's at 25 life. So the question that comes to me is I have enough power on the board to to kill everyone if I attack out. Except for Mel because of cross space. Right. Mel, can, Mel would go to, what are we, uh, 15 life. Um, because I attack her with two. Again, she has no blockers, so she take 22 damage. I can attack Craig with three of the vampires, which will knock him out. He has He's tapped out. So those those kills, sorry, the, the knockout on Craig is basically guaranteed. Mel, a ton of damage, basically guaranteed. The question here is, do I also attack Jimmy? So... If you can see what's happening here, Jimmy has counted out his mana, left it open, and passed the turn, representing a bounce spell, Cyclonic Rift, representing Cyclonic Rift, you know, the blue spell that says uh, 
bounce return all non-land permanents you don't control to their owner's hand. So he can bounce all non-land permanents that aren't his to their owner's hands. Of course, that will kill all of my tokens. Um, and Jimmy, I mean, you basically, I don't remember if you said it or you kind of intimated it or I, I definitely I intimated that. I don't think we I know said each other well enough yeah. that I kind of knew you were saying, listen, if you attack them, I won't cast it. And if you do, I will, if I have it. Right. Which is an unknown. I have five to six ish cards in my hand. I have been drawing a lot of cards this game and I'm in blue green. Yeah. You've had Sensei's divining top out for most of the game. So, you Harold's know, horn drawing me an additional card every turn. Yeah, much. you've been yeah. So, five or six cards is really like eight because you can look at the top three. Yep. Um, and at this point, I've but, I'm but, like well, maybe two tenths into my deck. So you've maybe looked at like twenty five or thirty cards. You have never tutored in the game though. Nope. So, you know, maybe you could, and you do have eight mana, so you could technically mystical tutor top grab the card, cast it. That's a possibility. So really, I'm worried about. Not just one card, but kind of two cards. Right. Mystical Tutor or you already having Cyclonic Rift. Right. Um, and that's the thing. Even if I didn't have Cyclonic Rift, I could tutor and then use the top to draw it. So there are a lot of ways for me to get that card into my hand. If yeah. I had, I would say there are maybe, if I didn't have actual Cyclonic Rift in my hand, there maybe like two or three different ways I could have gotten it. Yeah. And there's like evacuation you could possibly have. There's some other right. things. But Cyclonic Rift is the most obvious and kind of what... I mean, you you like counted. I remember you went like one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight mana. Look at that. Yeah. And then that. you passed the turn. Uh, some stuff that didn't get mentioned in the episode before we go into breaking this down. I only had three cards in my hand, and they were pretty bad. I think it was two lands. Ooh. It was like two lands, and um, I don't remember what the other one. It was like, uh, I forget what the other one was, but it wasn't an impactful card that was really going to do anything. So that all did factor into my decision because a big part of me was thinking like, well, what are my chances of winning this game with this hand? Right. Is my chance of winning this game likely to get better than having 110 power of vampires? Um, and again, Jimmy had five or six cards. So let's run through the choices that I was facing here and we'll kind of break it down. Again, this is a question we asked on the Game Nights episode. And if you look at the comments, it's pretty evenly sp- split. A lot of people think I should attack you. A lot of people said I shouldn't. Um so my choices were kind of like I could attack only Mel and Craig, and under that circumstance... Craig's dead, Mel's down to a very small amount. Provided Jimmy doesn't still cast Cyclonic Rift, which he could still do, even if I did that. Mm-hmm. Um, I can attack all three players, knocking out Jimmy and Craig, putting Mel to a really low life total if Jimmy doesn't have Cyclonic Rift or something like it. Then this was one that didn't occur to me at the time, but some people in the comments did mention it, which was attack Mel and Craig all out, and then just send like one creature at Jimmy. Yeah, maybe even two. Yeah, just thinking like, okay, Jimmy. Maybe even three. You have the chance to basically knock out Craig if you don't cast Cyclonic Rift. Is it worth you taking an additional 11 or maybe 22 damage? Um, you know, just trying to find that line where he's maybe not going to cast it. So that's the decision that that, uh, that was in front of me at that time. It's a tough decision. I think... For me, I think you made the right decision, which is you have to swing at everyone and go for the win. I think your chance, the chances of you winning there far outweigh the chances of what would happen if I had Cyclonic Rift. Because no matter what happened, if you did swing out there and I did have Cyclonic Rift, the end result I think would be the same. Unless you maybe did the thing where you maybe only swung one or two creatures at me. There was something people were talking about and they gave a lot of credit to that I didn't give much credit to and I still don't, which was the life gain that I could right. get. Right, you would have gained a ton of life if I let that attack happen, yeah. 
I mean, I guess, you know, what I really would have done if I didn't attack you was attack everything else at Craig. So I would have gained 110 life one right. way or another. And then hit Mel for 22. Yeah. And so, but my life total would be huge at that point, somewhere in like the 140s or 150s. That's what was going through my head, which was like, if Josh does do that. Do and I then still I, cast it? Well, I definitely would cast it uh, probably. That's the thing is like, am I going to beat Josh when he's at 120 life, but it would be me and Mel teamed up against him? Or do I just continue the game and not have someone like Craig knocked out? Craig, though, with Sakama and all of my artifacts and enchantments on the board, and he ended up being the thing I had to deal with for the rest of the game, I think I would have let that attack through and just thought to myself, you know what, maybe I'll try and kill him with commander damage because I can make it unblockable or something. I don't actually believe that the 110 life would have made too much of a difference in the game um, if I was heads up against you or virtually heads up against you. Because of your value engine, I would much rather have, you know, four, five, six more cards than I would have a hundred more life. The hundred more life isn't going to do me a lot of good, you know, especially considering that you eventually set up, you know, surge spanner and blah, blah, blah. Like, yeah, I was, yeah. yeah. Like, can you imagine if I was in the position where I was 1v1 against you and you had that set up? It's over. Like, yeah. there's, I, I don't care how much life I'm at. I can never win that game. You can just start bouncing my lands and stuff and it just doesn't matter. Um, so the way I thought about it was... Let's consider each scenario, and in each scenario, let's consider whether he has Cyclonic Rift or not. So, let's go with the scenario where I only attack Mel and Craig. If you have Cyclonic Rift in that scenario, one of two things happens. Either you use it before the damage happens. Or you wait till the players are knocked out. Or you wait till they're knocked out, or, or Mel's very low. And then on Mel's end step, you cast Cyclonic Rift. Yep. In which case, now Mel and I are 2v1 against you, and yeah, I got 110 life, but we have no permanence, and you're the first one to repopulate after the Cyclonic Rift. Now, let's say I attack Mel and Craig only, and you don't have Cyclonic Rift. I knock out Craig, I I knock Mel way down, down, and I could have knocked you out. Right, and then instead of killing me now, you have played around the card that didn't exist, and you have given two, you an extra turn, and you have a two v one against both of us. And now you have the ability to maybe use top and ever things to go find an answer on your turn. Mm-hmm. You know, but more importantly, I'm also teamed up with Mel against me. Yeah, whereas the other option would be all three of us against each other, kind of. And Mel was also playing a deck that had a lot of board wipes, so there's a decent chance Mel untaps and board wipes for you. In which case, now I'm yes, I'm at 110 life, but it's 2v1 and it's right. not great. So let's let's go through the scenario where I attack Mel and Craig all out and just one creature at you. I think this is basically the same as what we just described. Yeah, but in this case, I would wait to use Cyclonic Rift because I would see like maybe he has like some crazy double strike thing that can kill me out of nowhere. And if he didn't, I think I'd be okay letting Mel and Craig take a ton of damage and gain a ton of life. And then I would again wait till Mel's end step to use Cyclonic and Rift. And you were at, what do we say? You are at 35. 35, so you're going to go down to 24. Yeah, not that significant. Yeah. It's, yeah. And if you do, uh, yeah, either you do or you don't, I think it's the same scenario as I only attack Mel and Craig, whereas yeah. you Cyclonic Rift on Mel's end step and we're in huge trouble. I don't think you can, I don't think you can overestimate the fact that when you play the rift is very important because if I make you use it on my turn, not only do I get to replay my stuff, but Craig and Mel get to replay their stuff. Right. And now the games can be sort of more even. Whereas any other scenario where you use it on the end step before Mel's turn, you're way up here and we're all way down here. Yeah. Um, and no matter what the situation was looking the best for me, if I had cyclonic rift <laughs> by far. Yeah. I mean, I was thinking even if you showed me cyclonic rift, 
let's say that the scenario is totally the same, except for you literally just show the card to me and say, I have it. Telepathy is out. Yeah. I have the card. Look at it. Now, who would I attack? I think I still attack you because you've got it. Yeah, no matter to, what, I'm going to use it at Mel's end step, and your board is gone. And um, now my board's gone, and you're putting stuff out before I am. I'd rather make you use it now, because my vampires are dead. And do would I rather have 100 life, or would I rather have Craig still in the game? And that was a really big... You know, I was figuring... Well, imagine this. You're like, look, yes, I client grift. This is bad for all of us. And let's say you go to swing at Craig, and then all of a sudden, I'm trying to use this as a bargaining chip. And let's say like, oh, what if I want to use it now? Like Now I can get Craig on my side. side yeah, there's yeah. just a lot worse. Whereas if you're saving yourself, you can't make the statement to Craig, hey, I'm saving you. Yeah, exactly. He's like, you're saving yourself. You're not saving me. Yeah. I also was thinking, if Jimmy has Cyclonic Rift, I need Craig to stay in the game. Mm-hmm. Because me against Jimmy that's just Cyclonic Rifted, if Craig is out, is a lot worse than me against Jimmy that's just Cyclonic Rifted if Craig's still in the game. Because yeah. the comma is the biggest way to keep you, you in check. Because we needed to blow up the value engines, basically. I mean, I didn't yeah. know you were going to get Surge, Spanner, and start bound. Like, he will never play anything, basically, for the rest of the game. But at that point, I actually wanted Craig still in the game if you had it. So, pretty interesting. I still believe I made the right choice. But a lot of people, and I was surprised, were giving a lot of credence, especially to the fact that I would gain so much life. I just don't understand how gaining all that life actually does me much good. Yeah, life gain, I think, is a little overrated here. Um, and a lot of people brought up the old example that I've used a long time ago where I played Cryptic Command like six times in the game. By just threatening by it? By just saying, like, look, if you attack me, I'm going to tap. You know, if you're saying you're going to attack me, I'm going to tap all your things down, and then you're going to be open, and we're all going to kill you. So it, like, happened for, like, three turn cycles where I could just keep casting the, the Cryptic Command over and over again. So you can't let that happen either. Yeah, one of the moves I love to make in a game is like when somebody threatens to kill my thing or do something and I go, yeah, okay, go ahead, do it. Yeah. You know, where it's like, I can't play around that card. If you have it, you have it. I don't want to be in a position. Like, I'd rather you use it now. Yeah. My under my on, terms. On the board too. Like, yeah. I'll, maybe I won't play something out of my hand, but I'm not, there's nothing I can really do to save that card on my board unless you have some crazy flicker shenanigans. Yeah. So I am interested for those of you that haven't weighed in and we'll go to two of the listeners here. Do you, if you haven't weighed in already, do you, what do you think about that decision? And do you think that that is what you would have done? I do believe the correct decision was to swing at Jimmy, even like I said, if he had showed me the card. Yeah, try and, try and win the game at that yeah. point, I think for sure. Because if you win the game, guess what? You win the game, <laughs> right? Uh, if you don't win the game, then you have done the best thing that doesn't create the most enemies or allies against you necessarily. I mean, uh, we cut this from the interviews, I think, in the game. But one of the things that I said was like, let's say that in my mind, I was 90% sure that you had Cyclonic Rift. That's a 10% chance to win the game right On now. On the spot. Yeah. My chances at the beginning of the game are only 25%. Yeah. So 10% right now is actually pretty good considering that like I can't beat a Cyclonic Rift if he's got it. Yeah. So uh, interesting. All right. Yeah, weigh in about that. I'd like to hear people uh, weigh in about whether they, in their casual playgroups, follow the ban list strictly or not. Um, and then how would you handle somebody like Bob, who's maybe a little bit, he's socially manipulating people, not in the game, outside the game. Maybe not even on purpose. Who knows? Yeah. All right. Whew. Make sure that you visit cardkingdom.com slash command zone to buy all of your magic products, singles, um, what set we got coming up here? We got uh, Rivals of Ixalan just came out. M25 about to come out. 
we can't say anything, but Jimmy and I have seen the set because of Game Nights, and it's pretty sweet. So you might want to be pre-ordering some of that stuff. Yeah, not to mention a lot of Rivals cards, too. Like those new Flip Enchantments, oh, I think, man. are awesome. So you definitely want to get a hand on some of those. Azor's Gateway. Yeah. Storm the Vault is a card. Storm the Vault is, is, really cool is a too, card yeah. that I, I want to build an entire deck now uh, just because of Storm the Vault. <laughs> um, and also make sure to pick up Ultra Pro products. We got Eclipse Leaves. There's Heavy Metal Dice. There's Awesome Play Mats. They have all kinds of stuff, and they have a new product coming up, which we're going to talk about on the next game nights. Oh, it's so uh, cool. It's pretty sweet. It appeals very... If you like collecting and doing stuff like I do in the game, uh, four games, you're going to love this. There's a certain part of our game... Boy, we're being really teasy, but there's a certain part of our game that it's going to up the the ante on pretty big. Yeah, certainly. So, pretty sweet. Okay, now it's time for the end step, where we talk about something cool outside the world of magic. Okay, so every single year, uh, you can get a flu shot from the the medicine people you can go to like a pharmacy cdc right the C, yeah the cdc yeah essentially they, the ones that do it. They, they essentially go like all right here's what we think is going to happen this next flu season we're going to put together a concoction a cocktail of ingredients that you can put in your body that will hopefully help you fight against the flu this year has been one of the worst flu seasons in well they recorded missed history uh my girlfriend who is a medical provider yeah uh she would say that i think they the flu shot because they're predicting like you said this year they missed with the flu shot and it's only 10% effective. Yeah, it's usually a lot more effective and a lot of people have actually died from the flu this year. But that 10%, again, if that's 10% to miss the flu as this is now the third time I've been sick this year, I would take that 10% every single time. And well, my dad's a doctor as well. So. Well, yeah, and my girlfriend would want me to say here that you should still get the flu shot yes. because it actually will make, when you do get the flu, it's less... Um, intense. It's less intense. So yeah, it's still worth it to get the flu shot because it... You know, you're more likely this year than others to still get the flu, even though you've had the flu shot. But yes. then when you do, it won't, you know, yes, you're, insane, you're, yeah. you're way less likely for it to be fatal or something. It knocked know? me out for an entire week straight. It knocked a few of my friends out for an entire week straight. And this is, again, the third time I've gotten sick now. And I usually only get sick once every two years. And a lot of people also will say, oh, I got the flu shot and it gave me the flu. That's actually what happens is that you're getting a version of a virus but also the antibodies to defeat it so that your body's like training. You're getting a less intense version that your body learns how to fight. And then when the more intense version comes, the soldiers are all ready. Yes, exactly. So I can't recommend it enough. Get your flu shots. Make sure that you are very careful. This The flu season is still happening. It's still very dangerous. So if someone's coughing, if someone says they're feeling sickly, get away from them. Tell them to go home and make sure that you do not stand podcast with them talk to them <laughs> share a space with them i think i'm not contagious anymore so you're okay i don't i'm jinxing the heck out of it but terry has had it you've had it a couple times l my girlfriend and let me tell you she's got an immune system that could beat the crap out of anything because she works in the er like uh she got it and somehow i've been around all those people and i haven't got it yet so maybe where your flu shot yeah maybe maybe you know, yeah we give you like small versions of it and your body's like and beats Hoo! it each time Hoo! <laughs> all right um make sure to check out the masters i, almost, I was like where are we at you know what else like, is sick yeah. <laughs> <laughs> our sister podcast <laughs> i'm dying man i'm like falling asleep uh, in the this is the best here. segue of the history of the show <laughs> you know what else is sick sick yo <laughs> the masters of modern podcast uh alex kessler ben bateman they talk about the modern format all things competitive Magic, you can find them on Twitter at the MMCast or right next to us at Collected.Company. That's right. And our editor for the show is Terry Robertson doing the... Oh, it is. But it's also... Oh. So we're in a transition period here. 
This is very exciting. Yeah, this is very exciting. So Craig Blanchett, our Mr. In fact, our good friend from Game Nights and this show, uh, has started to take over some of the editing duties on the podcast. So this episode is edited by Terry Robertson and Craig Blanchett, and sometime very soon will be edited only by Craig Blanchett. Right, Terry's moving on to focusing a lot more on the Game Nights duties. Uh, it's awesome seeing how he's progressed and gotten so much better at editing over the years. Uh, very, very fun to see that incremental progress like we talked about earlier. So big thank you to Terry and Craig for editing the show. The video versions you can find at youtube.com slash Podcast. And, of course, special thanks to Jeffrey Palmer, who does the living card animations that start and end the show, as well as some of the animations behind us. Horizon Canopy. Horizon Canopy. Awesome. Good job, Jeffrey. Thanks, Jeffrey. And right. thanks, you all, for listening. Make sure to enter, if you're a patron, the audition process so you could be a guest on Game Nights. Again, all of those details are in the show description below. All right. Thanks all for watching and listening. And we'll see you next time. Peace. For further inquiries, send an email to commandcast at rocketjump.com or ask us on Twitter at JF Wong and at Josh Lee Kwai. See you later, alligator. Greetings, humans. <laughs>